Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. Glad you're with us today. My name's Ben. I'm one of the pastors. And as David alluded, we've been doing a series on anxiety. Uh, and today we're going to finish it up. So I just want to ask you, you good? Did you guys figure out anxiety? Is that all cleared up? No? Maybe a little bit more? Uh, I wanted to think about it with you because it's one of those things that's interesting in its frustration. You, you feel like there's an answer. Uh, the, the scripture seems to be really clear that this is possible. God seems to say that you don't have to be anxious. He certainly commands it. But then when you pursue the things that God gives to kind of deal with anxiety, I don't know how quickly it seems to happen uh, for most people. I don't know what your situation has been with that concept of anxiety. It's frustrating because there's a lot that's connected to it. Like if I could really knock out fear and anxiety, I, I think I could probably eat better. I don't know. I mean, maybe I would weigh less. Like if I could really knock out fear and anxiety, what would my relationships be like? How quickly would I jump to like anger when I could probably be a little more calm? And that sounds like really nice. When you talk to people with addictive behaviors, Oftentimes, while you have to deal with the addiction, if you're smart about it and, and you read about addiction, you know that, man, that addiction is usually there because of something else. So if we just deal with the one, you, you're really not helping too much. And how often is, is this concept part of that? Man, I don't know. I, I, I hope that as we talked about this, you've been able to understand it a little bit more, but, but I don't know how many of us were really stupid enough to think that it was just going to like, you know, clear up, like this was just a Z-pack and then you're back to life and ready to kind of roll again. I, I don't know that we thought that way, but the way the Bible talks about it, I don't know. It doesn't seem like it's in jeopardy. It just seems like you can not be anxious. Well, let's talk about it a little bit more. I want to think about one kind of hole in our method that I think we might be slipping through, like it may be our, our problem. Our method so far from Philippians 4 is we talk about how we want to understand our fear. Like if you're feeling your fear, the first thing you got to do is try to identify it. Like we've done a really good job of trying to hide that fact from ourselves. Let's distract ourselves from an unpleasant emotion. Well, don't do that. Feel it. And when you're feeling it, start to examine it. So we identify it, we start to examine it. We ask what about that fear um, is, is legitimate. Like if fear is a response that God's given that says that something I love is in danger, then if I feel fear, I can fill in those blanks. What do I love and what's in danger? And you can start asking whether that's legitimate or not. Is this a legitimate fear? Is this not a legitimate fear? A lot of times they're pretty legitimate. So then you move on to that next step where you start saying, all right, let's draw some circles. What of this situation is my responsibility and what is God's responsibility? If I can see those differences, then yeah, I can get to work, but I can also do what Paul commends us to do in Philippians 4. I can start to pray. I can give God my anxiety. And yeah, there's stuff to do. But then that, that last thing that we said, that sort of last step after we pray is to start thinking about something else. Like you do what you're going to do, but you've only got today. So you knock out the task list that you can handle for that day. And then you don't keep spinning on those same fears. You think about what is true or noble or right or pure or lovely or excellent or worthy of praise. Okay, <laughs> good. That's our method. But as soon as I give you a method, if you're like me, 
you can start to get anxious about whether or not you're doing the method right. <laughs> like I'm doing a lot of reading on counseling right now, and I find that instead of becoming like more healthy and like saintly, I'm becoming like much more angry and fearful. And I think it's because as soon as you read about somebody else's problem and what they're supposed to do to fix it, you realize that you got to shade that yourself. And all of a sudden your spiritual disciplines list goes from like reading the Bible and praying and, you know, talking to other Christians and maybe getting a little quiet time each day to like 55,000 different things that you're supposed to do to handle 55,000 different problems that let's be real, you have. Oh, 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 oh. Is it possible that in trying to help deal with anxiety and stress and fear, we've actually increased our anxiety and stress and fear? Well, that's possible. And I think part of the possibility is that we haven't really connected with everything that God's given us in this passage. So real quick, we're going to go back to Philippians 4, and then we're going to spend some time in another uh, passage today to, to finish out this series. But really quickly, in Philippians 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say... Rejoice, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So there's a lot there. And what we talked about is certainly there. But there's some other stuff that's there that I don't know that we've talked enough about. The first thing he starts with is rejoice in the Lord always. Ha, huh. okay. And then he says that as we're going through this process about not being anxious about everything, but instead praying and giving these things over to God, he says to do it with thanksgiving. Those are two concepts that I think even if we perfect this method, we might really not be doing great with. Because I, I, I think that a lot of times, we want to feel less fear. It's a painful emotion. It'd be great to get rid of it. But if God's solution involves a lot of him, then we kind of get stuck a little bit because there's a part of us that says, yeah, I don't want to feel fear, but it would be great if God's involvement was a little less involved. Like, wouldn't it be great if it was just sort of a method? I could knock out that method and then I could like report back to him on Sundays or whenever I'm supposed to talk to him and just say, no, we're good. You know, you keep being God. I'll keep doing whatever the heck I want to do. And thank you that I'm not fearful anymore. I don't know that we would say it that crassly, but I think it's possible. I think there are part of us, the, there's a group of us, or it's probably, you know, a portion of the heart of many of us that says, I would love to for God to be more involved in my life, but I don't think he would want to be more involved with me. Like all this stuff is very dependent on, on God's involvement in me. I'm going to hand over my anxieties to him, but would, would he really want to help me? You have a shame issue. Well, I, I'm, I'm in that camp. I'm with you. Then there's the other side of us. And gosh, I'll just confess. I, I feel this one too. That says, yeah, I mean, I would love to not feel fear, but if feeling, uh, having no fear means that I'm really like connected to the Lord, then that also means that he's like really involved with what I get to do with myself. Like that he would also be involved in like the pleasures that I go after. I don't know that I really want him involved in that way. We talked about it maybe a week or two ago about like when your in-laws come to town and they're just there and it's fine or great, you know, if they're watching. It's great. <laughs> but they're there. 
And like the dishes are going to get done a little bit of a different way and the kids are going to get instructed from them without talking to you about what they think about their life. And you're just, all of a sudden, there's involvement. And you'd really rather kind of have your own castle. You'd rather keep things your own way. So, so shame is a reason that we think God might not really want to help us, but pride is also a reason that we might not want God to help us. And this Philippians passage is kind of presupposing some of that stuff. It's presupposing a little bit of rejoicing in the Lord. Shame kills that kind of joy. <laughs> Pride hides from that kind of joy. It talks about a thankfulness, a, a, a feeling of, of gratitude towards God. I don't know. Do you feel that? When Eduardo read those verses from Psalm 34, was that your story? Here's what another, uh, another psalm says. It says in Psalm 73, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Can you actually pray that? Like, take a second and read that. That's not poetic license. It's not hyperbole. That guy felt that, or that lady felt that about their relationship with God. Do you? We say, well, of course not. Uh, yeah. But do you a little bit? Are you, are you growing towards that? Or is this a totally foreign idea? See, I think part of the problem that we have with trying to reduce anxiety in a biblical way is that if God's the solution, like he has to be the solution. This isn't about giving you tips and tricks to avoid fear, or like reduce it in your life. This is about getting close to the Lord Almighty and then having the Lord Almighty do what the Lord Almighty does. He brings an incredible level of comfort, but that comfort can also feel a little confining for a proud person. He brings an incredible level of presence, but that presence can feel a little revealing for a person that deals with a lot of shame. So what I want to do today is I want to kind of cap onto our Philippians sort of methodology with anxiety, what I think is really at the heart of Christianity. And it's certainly there in the Philippians passage, but maybe we've been a little technical and avoided it a little bit. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap with me to Ephesians chapter 3. And I know we're part of the way through the sermon already. We're not beginning now. This is usually how I begin. It's okay. I've timed it out. But if you will, turn or tap your way to Ephesians chapter 3. And if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we're going to put these passages on the screen as we have been for you. And, and we'd love to give you a Bible and a readable English translation uh, for free on your way out today. But let's read. This is another letter, just like Philippians, the same author, and he's writing to a group of Christians just in a different spot instead of Philippi, Ephesus. Again, a place you can go to. And in this letter, Paul's talking about a lot of different things, but in Ephesians 3, he says this. Go down to verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. 
so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, if you're like me, when you read Paul, and it seems like especially Paul, you get into these long sentences where you can tell like something really wonderful is happening. If you're not real sure what it is, I feel like my dog... When Rachel and I are like really happy about something or like, you know, I'm like holding her hand and we're talking to each other and we're very excited about something, our dog will get right up there next to us and look at us and his tail's going and you know he's happy because we're happy and you know he's got no idea what's happening. Well, I think a lot of Christians do that. They're like, yeah, there's something here. Oh man, Paul's happy and I bet those Ephesians are happy. Next chapter, you know, you don't know what's happening. Well, let's, let's dig in because I want you to see what's happening here. And I actually think this passage in particular is a really good one to go to on a regular basis. Like this is one that I try to pray through every day over my family. It's something that's not just like a doxology or a blessing. It's something that takes the gospel and tries to apply it. And I, I want you to see that. You gotta, <laughs> you gotta get this. First, God, in this passage, is looking for a committed relationship. Now, this is, again, what's going to trigger your pride and trigger your shame. But, but understand that what he's saying here, the blessing he's giving here, the kind of relationship that God wants to have with you that would provide you resources to deal with your fear and anxiety, according to Paul, is a pretty committed relationship. He starts by saying, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. We're still in one part of one sentence, by the way. <laughs> this is maybe Paul's problem. But, but as he's talking here, he's describing two ways that I want you to see that God is saying he's looking for a very committed relationship. He talks about being your father, now, when you're in fear, it would be great to have an advisor, to have a protector. And while a father can be those things, don't you understand that a father is much more than those things? Yeah, he describes himself as your protector. He describes himself as wisdom. But what he describes his relationship with you as is father. Now, again, dad can be an advisor, dad can be a protector, but that's not the nature of that relationship. He is saying that from every family on earth can be named, is named from this father, that there is a true adoption that's here and that you can be brought all the way in. But don't you see that's the hairy part that we've been discussing this whole sermon? Like, like if he brings you in like that, what if it doesn't work out? I've got a friend of a friend in another state, but the friend of the friend and his wife decided that they wanted to, to foster to adopt. And they brought in this fourth grade girl and it didn't work out. They thought they could do it, they thought they were in, and then once they got into it, they said, we can't, 
and they had to give the girl back. Now, you know how hard that must be for the parents, not parents, the, the foster parents. But imagine, imagine how hard that is for that kid. I, you know, I don't know the whole situation. I don't want to write too much into it. Let's just let it sit as sort of a metaphor for us. Because when God says that he wants to bring you in, especially if you're in that shame camp, there's a part of you that goes, but he doesn't really know what he's getting into. My daughter, they had book fair. And at the book fair, you know, they go straight to the kids. They don't tell the parents, hey, we have a book fair. You may want to spend some money. They go straight to the kids and say, we're going to have a book fair. Tell your parents to bring all their money. And they tell the kids all of these books that they've got to have, you know, and they just go right around the goalie. I don't know why they think that's appropriate. But then my daughter came home and told me about a great book that she thought she might want. And it was about this puppy. But the puppy had a big scar. And so the puppy was nervous that it wouldn't get adopted by a nice family because it didn't look as cute as the other puppies. Now, that's all she told me. And then she was ready to go have a snack. And I was like emotionally undone. <laughs> what is going to happen to the... You know, like I'm starting to get emotional and she doesn't know what's happening. So she's trying to figure out why I'm upset. And I'm just saying to her, sweetheart, a family loves you. And a, this family wants you. And she's like, I was talking about a puppy. I was not talking about me. And I was like, no, I know. But me, Jesus loves me. He, and she's just trying to get out of the car. But do you feel that a little bit? I mean, if you do, and you're like me, I mean, do you understand why that might be a check in your heart as you're thinking about your relationship with God, where he's like, I want to adopt you. And you're like, but you don't know, man. <laughs> like, I got some stuff. If Satan is the accuser, he doesn't have a lot of work to do with me. There's a list. He can just point, and I'll agree. I'm far from holy. You want to adopt me? I'm not going to make your house better. I'm going to make your house way worse. You're going to bring something filthy into your world, God. That's not what you want. And you got the best intentions in the world, just like that little foster family. You've got the best intentions in the world, but I'm going to get in your life and I'm going to screw it up. And then you're going to try and give me back. Isn't it easier to just not start that process than to have it end that way? But that's not what God says. Look at what it says in verse 16. According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Now that phrase there, to the riches of his glory, is one I want to grab onto because I want to give you a theological reason, a strong, hard, kind of cornered reason that you can set yourself on for why God's not going to give you back. Ed Welch, again, these are books I'm going to quote all the time because I really want you to read these guys. In his book called Running Scared, Fear, Worry, and the Rest of God, I'm sorry, The God of Rest, says... Your standard is what you would do to someone like yourself. And chances are you wouldn't let whatever has happened go by quickly. You, you wouldn't let whatever filth, whatever sin, whatever betrayal, whatever shame, you wouldn't let it go quickly. And that becomes your standard, so you assume that God's got that standard. But God, however, forgives for his own name's sake. 
Now he's gonna quote from Isaiah. This is a prophet in the Old Testament speaking in God's voice when he says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. There may be no finer words in scripture. God bases his forgiveness on himself and on his forgiving character, not on the quality of your confession. Do you understand what that's saying? Is there a part of you that is really judgmental towards that foster couple? I am. I'm mad at them. If you don't have what it takes, don't put your name on that list. Now, that's not right. I'm not bringing in kids. Like, we just got our three, and they're great. We haven't tried to foster. Who am I to look down and judge those people? So I'm not saying it's right, but can I ask you, and you don't have to, like, nod or raise your hand or anything, is there a part of you that thinks they shouldn't have done that? Like, it certainly isn't something they're going to tell other people. I'm not going to tell you their name. I'm not even going to tell you the friend that's the friend of the people in case you could kind of like detective your way there. I don't want you to know because I don't want you to shame these people. The point isn't that. The point is, do you understand that giving somebody back like that isn't a great look? They didn't understand what they were getting into. They didn't know that kid's situation or their own, really. Do you understand how God would never allow that to happen to himself? See, when we say, God, you you don't know what you're getting into, he goes, oh, I don't know what I'm getting into? Don't forget, he's God. He knows exactly what you've done. He knows what you wanted to do and almost did. He knows what you did and nobody else knows about. He knows what you're going to do, because it's not all going to get better from here. He knows what you're going to do. And seeing you as you are, Knowing fully the check he's going to have to write to forgive you, he wrote it. He put his name, he put his glory at stake when he offered to love and forgive and adopt you. He put his name there. Now, he did that. So if you accept it, he's not going anywhere. And you go, well, why would he go anywhere? Of course he's going to go somewhere. I'm terrible. No, he's not going anywhere because he's put his name at stake. And nothing is going to impinge the glory of God. No, he knows everything that went on. And he loves you so much that he chose to send his son to die that you might be forgiven and become for all eternity a trophy of his grace. Do you you understand? You think you're going to walk into the kingdom and be a trophy of his strength, that you're going to be an example of his wisdom, that the world's going to look at you and go, oh, wow, look at that. There's the wisdom of God walking down the street. Oh, wow, look at that. There's the mercy of God. You don't know how kind that person is. That's what we think. But for eternity, you are going to be an example, a shining capital example of God's grace. (laughs) He's put his glory on it. He's not going anywhere. That can be incredibly comforting when you start to understand it. That becomes something really sturdy that you can build yourself on because it's not going anywhere. 
But let's remember, too, that it can also feel a little confining. He's not going anywhere. He's looking for a committed relationship. And for all the sitcom guys out there in the world, we know that when you say committed relationship, you know they get a little nervous. I wanted a low-commitment girlfriend, not a wife. But God is not looking for a low-commitment thing here, guys. He's looking for you forever. Is that good, though? Let's go from the shame to a little bit of the pride thing. Like, do you want that? Well, let's keep going. Not only is he looking for a committed relationship, he commands, he, he says that he's going to make you stronger all the time in order that you might understand his love. Okay, these are not like rememberable points, but maybe it helps you to go back through Ephesians later. He says in verse 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Do you ever have conversations with people about exactly how hard your life is? I mean, it is like we do this all the time. You sit down with a good friend, a spouse, a whomever, and you start going through like, what is so hard about being you? And there's probably a lot of stuff there. There are people that have really, really rough stuff that have gone on in their life and their relationships. But there's also people who, you know, kind of got it good. And if you're one of those people, you're still going to find that it doesn't really feel that great. I had a buddy that was using this. Uh, we were just kind of talking about midlife stuff. I'm 38 now. Woohoo! And at a 38, uh, I hope that's not midlife. Like, I hope I make it a little further. But I live a wild and loose life, so it's probably more than halfway. <laughs> And so we were just talking about midlife stuff. And he said, well, it's kind of like a vacation where it's like, great, and you plan this thing, and you pay a lot of money, and it's going to be awesome. And then you get there. Like, you get to midlife, you've done this stuff, you've accomplished some of this stuff, you've got wounds, there's stuff that's bad, but there's stuff that's good. And you look around, and you're like, no, 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 this is what I wanted. And, you know, like, <laughs> it's great. But is it really? Like you, you can have a wonderful life, but there's a point where you stop and you say, okay, but, you know, I, I kind of need something more, I think. And that's why I like the guy gets an earring and a new girlfriend and gets a car. And, you know, like he tries to sort of reset his life. Why? Because it just, you know, it's great, but... Is it enough? That's what I want to kind of think about next. Because as he's talking about the love of God and he's talking about the strengthening that God gives, what he's talking about is a way for you to understand by degrees that while the things of this world might grow strangely dim, the glory of his grace is going to continue to have appeal. Here's what I mean. There's a guy named John Stott, British guy. I think he passed away. I don't know. All these people are dead. I don't know when he died. He died sometime. Um, but he, in talking about the book of Ephesians, he's got a great little book on Ephesians. But he says, the indwelling of Christ is a thing of degrees. So also is the inward strengthening of the Holy Spirit. What Paul asks for his readers is that they may be fortified, braced, invigorated, that they may know the strength of the Spirit's inter-reinforcement and may lay hold ever more firmly by faith of this divine strength this divine indwelling. 
You know, you look at your Christian faith, it may feel a little flat, but it won't. While the things that you've got in this world may, may be great and may get better, they may also not. But what Paul is describing here is something that will get better and better and better. He is describing something that will grow by degrees. If we said, no, I, I don't know that applying this anxiety methodology has led to my life becoming perfect all of a sudden and me losing weight or anything. I, I think I might actually be getting worse. Okay, well, give it a minute because what God is doing is something that takes some time. But what he is doing is also leading you into something that is absolutely mind-blowing. He, another guy, H.C.G. Mooley, Mool. This is a guy that died in the 1800s, said, here then we have to do not so much with fact as with grasp on fact. Okay, so, so what God has given you is real, but you're slowly coming to terms with how good this thing is. It's not just the fact of it. You've been singing the fact of it if you've been a Christian as long as you've been in the room. But it's how well are you grasping that fact? The, the reception of what is already there, what is already vitally present the reception of the Lord in habitual realization, in a regular realizing by your conscience, by your understanding and imagination and your affections and your will. He's describing what happens when you slowly start to grow and you slowly start to change and God slowly starts to captivate you with his love. This is what we started with. Do you rejoice in him? Are you really thankful for him? Put all that shame stuff together and you can be really thankful for the God that loves you like that. But do you, do you enjoy him? Well, you can. You can when you start to realize the kind of love that he has for you. Go down to verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What he's inviting you into is what Christ prayed for us, that we would know the Lord even as he knows the Lord. What he's inviting you into is a kind of love, a kind of relationship, which again, go to back to John Stott. Yet it seems to me legitimate to say the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all of mankind. When David says, whatever background you're from, he's being realistic. He's talking about these verses even. That God's love is long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. And it's high enough to exalt him to heaven. Listen, I, I know that this stuff is really intense. And some of this stuff can seem like maybe you'd just be better without it. You know, you got your life and the Lord's kind of wanting to horn in on some of your pleasures. Well, okay. But do you understand what he's offering? God's offering to not only be your God, he's offering to be your love. Maybe you're like Adam and Eve and you're, you're trying to hide behind some fig leaves because you know you're ashamed, but, but maybe you're kind of more like these people building the Tower of Babel. You feel like you're pretty impressive too and that God actually may get in your way rather than make your life better. Well, for you, let me just encourage you to look at this love. A love that sees you as you are, that wants you right where you're at and wants to bring you into his presence that you might be able to sing with that psalmist about how nothing on earth compares with him. If this seems like an impossible thing, well, let me just ask you if you even know him. 
Like, if, if you're already a Christian, let me just ask you, are you growing in these degrees? But if you're not a Christian, let me ask you, have you, have you considered why you may not want to be his? It's an interesting question. You, know, you say, man, I, I don't know that I believe this. Maybe, but usually when I talk to people, the rational arguments they have against God are, are kind of the surface But when we answer them, because there's been a thousand PhDs written on whatever it is that they're upset about, once we answer some of that stuff and dig a little deeper, we find that some of this is actually what was hanging them up. They've got these pleasures they think are very refined, but God is saying, no, 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 come to me and have life. He's able to do, and this is the end of these verses, far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Listen, do you know him? If you do, praise God. I hope that then as as you're engaging with him, you're growing deeper with him, that you're, you're being filled up with the fullness of this love. But if not, let's talk. There's no, we're not going to put the screws to you. Like, we want you to make this decision when it's your decision. But we want to talk to you about the goodness of a God like this, the kind of adopting love of a God like this that would put his glory at stake to bring you to himself. You got these little white cards on every other chair. If this is something you want to talk to us more about, please do us the honor of giving us a little bit of contact info, and you can drop it in that little box right there, and I'll reach out to you. It won't be somebody else. It'll be me. If you would rather it be somebody else, just put that on the card. We'll figure that out too. <laughs> and we'll just try and connect. What we're offering you is what God's offering you is himself. Won't you take it? Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask for your grace this morning that you would bring us to yourself, that you would complete this good process of showing us our fear by showing us your strength and your goodness, that you would take us through this fire, as we sang, that you would be that fourth man. That's a reference to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the uh, Nebuchadnezzar's palace where they get thrown into a fiery furnace. And yet, though they throw three in, a fourth person is there because you were there with them. And then the flames did not touch them. Lord, you deliver us through the flames, not of a, a dictator. You, you can, but you deliver us through the flames of judgment by putting Christ to be with us. Lord, will you help us understand what that does to our shame? Will you help us to understand the pleasures of love that you promise. Because, Father, you make known to us the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.